Good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Marriott Center. Today we will be hearing from Brother Donald W. Perry. For your information, Brother Perry uh, tells me that you, you may take photos of his slides for your personal study only. We ask that you uh, not post any of these photos to your social media, uh, and we thank you in advance for, for that. Before we get started, we've asked Missy Fisher from Ashland, Kentucky to say the opening prayer, after which we'll hear from Brother Perry. Our kind and gracious Father in heaven, we come to thee at the beginning of this meeting to give thanks for the many blessings which we have. We're grateful for the safety that we've had in traveling to come to attend this event and grateful for the many hands that have worked and labored to put this together. At this time, we ask that thy blessing would be with our presenter, that he might have the spirit with him and share the things that would have us learn. We pray that our hearts and minds too might be open to the spirit that we will receive the messages that are prepared for us individually. We give thee thanks for all that we have and acknowledge that it all comes from thee. We love thee and say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The way you say welcome in the Hebrew language is Ruchim Habaim, and it literally means blessed are those who come. So, Blessings to you. Thank you for the prayer. I sought diligently the Spirit. I know that truth is relayed through the Spirit, so I'm thankful for that prayer. Did you know that President Ezra Taft Benson and his sweetheart attended the temple every Friday throughout most of their marriage? Of course, when health conditions wouldn't allow, they did not attend the temple. President Thomas S. Monson tells a story at General Conference in April 1993. He went up to President Benson and said this. He said, I need to get busy and do some of my own family names in the temple. President Benson, with a smile and a twinkle in his eyes, said, Brother Monson, if you're too busy, why not let Sister Benson and me do your names? <laughs> that, that's a message for all of us, I think. It's a privilege to talk to you about the, the temple. Uh, I read a statement by someone at one point, a published statement, and they said, the ancient tabernacle of Moses had nothing to do with our temples. Sadly, that statement is, very, very incorrect. There are actually 27 parallels between ancient temples, meaning the Tabernacle of Moses and Solomon's Temple and Herod's Temple, and our temples, the temples of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I'm pleased to share these, some of these parallels. There are actually more than 27 parallels. Some of them are too sacred to talk about. They deal with certain covenants and so on. Uh, in the temple that would not be proper for me to share with you. First of all, I'm Brother Perry. It's P-A-R-R-Y, I'm from Idaho. Uh, I, have, I teach Biblical Hebrew here at BYU. I also teach a class on ancient temples. 
A few years ago, I had a BYU student, the first day of class, he knew I was from Idaho. So he asked in front of all the class members, Brother Perry, what's the best thing that ever came out of Idaho? And I paused for a minute and, and I said, what? And he said, the freeway. <laughs> it's a, that's a true story. Uh, that student earned an F. <laughs> that part's not true. The, the, the first part is absolutely true. He was a great student and, and I, I enjoyed his humor. So, but it's good to be here. August 11, 1883. John Knowles, who's pictured at the, the right top, fell 50 feet to his death. He was working on a scaffolding of the Logan Temple. When he fell, it killed him instantly. The chief stoneworker of the temple was named John Perry. He's a relative of mine. And if you look at his haircut, you can see we have similar haircuts. I kind of wish I'd grow my hair like that and wear it like that the first day of class in three weeks. And John Perry was there. He called Joshua Salisbury, shown bottom right, to give John Knowles a blessing. Even though John Knowles was dead, his body was mangled on the ground. They carried John Knowles' body into the, the temple, put, it, put him on some sort of a couch, his body. Meanwhile, someone called for Joshua Salisbury, who was working a block or two away from the temple, cutting stones. Joshua came down the path, entered the temple, where there was a basin of water. He took the water and washed his face, combed his hair, and combed his beard, because he wanted to look nice when he administered to Brother Knowles. Brother Perry, anointed Brother Knowles, Brother Salisbury sealed the anointing. And in the name of Israel's God, that's what he said, in the name of Israel's God, Brother Salisbury commanded Brother Knowles to return to life. Brother Knowles was obedient and came back to life. Later, Brother Knowles said, when I fell, and my body hit the ground. I hit the ground so hard, it bounced my spirit right on my body. And then he said, as a spirit hovering above my body, I heard Brother Perry call for Brother Salisbury. I saw Brother Salisbury walk down the pathway to the temple, go into the temple, wash his face, his beard, and his hair. Then I listen to the blessing. This is Brother Noel's spirit telling, uh, uh, this is him telling everyone later what he witnessed as a spirit with his dead body here. I, I listened to the command and my spirit came back into the bo my body. This is a remarkable true story. All three families know this story very well. Now I want to tell you how nice the Perrys are and I'm this nice too. The Perrys 
are really, really nice. <laughs> Here's how nice Brother Curry was. He gave Brother Knowles the rest of the day off. <laughs> True story. Now, I gave this story to a stake in Logan four or five years ago, before COVID. After my talk, I had several people come up and wish me well and shake my hand and say hi. These people came up, and I'm in the middle, to the, um, uh, on the image to the right is Brother Knowles, direct descendant, the one with suspenders. He was 91 at the time, and he was serving as elders corn president of his ward. And that's his daughter standing next to him. And they both said, we know this story, it's in the journal of Brother Knowles. To the left on the picture is this sister, and the son with the cool hair is uh, direct descendants of uh, Salisbury, Brother Salisbury. So here, generations later, remember the date was uh, 1883, over 100 years later, all three of these families are still active in the church. I was very impressed. Someone heard this and they said, let's get a photo of all of you. Now, if you look to the far right on the screen, you'll see a young man with a bow tie. He is a professional photobomber. <laughs> and that's what he does. One more story, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the miracle of the temple. Edward L. Perry, another relative of mine, another nice haircut, was the head chief stoneworker of the St. George Temple. And Edward Perry examined every stone that went into the St. George Temple. Now notice this is a temple before it had the, the larger steeple. He, he looked at every stone and he would um, examine every stone. He was on the roof of this temple, and he found a stone with a hairline crack. And he called the worker who cut that stone. He found out who, who did it. He said, this has a hairline crack. And the worker, that these stones, each stone took a long time to, to cut. The worker said, but it's, it won't hurt the integrity of this building, and no one will know. And Brother Perry said this, there are three who will know. You know that that stone's there. I know, and the Lord knows. Please take it out and do it right. So that, that's uh, another uh, miracle of the temple, the best for the Lord. Elder Witzel said this, it may be that the temple endowment and the other temple ordinances form the strongest available evidence of the divine inspiration of the prophet Joseph Smith. When I first read this, I was astounded because I had always thought the Book of Mormon was the greatest evidence for the prophet Joseph Smith. And of course, it may be the greatest, uh, but when I read this, uh, the temple also, the temple and the ordinances are astounding. I'm gonna go through 27 uh, correspondences between ancient and modern temples, and some of those were not even known to the world at the time of Joseph Smith when he restored the temple and its ordinances. Some of them were discovered by scholars in the 1960s and 70s and written about. So I, I think you'll find that this is 
going to be an astounding evidence of the Prophet Joseph. First, I need to quote President Nelson. President Nelson has talked a lot about the temple. If you go back and look at all of his teachings, you'll be astounded. He said this, the, the antiquity and the modernity of temple activity blend and bridge the gulf of time. Even the newest temples closely relate to ancient times. Those sacred temple rites are ancient. To me, that antiquity is thrilling and another evidence of their authenticity. He also said this, temple patterns are as old as human life on earth. Actually, the plan for temples was established even before the foundation of the world. Temple ordinances and covenants have been an integral part of the gospel since the days of Adam and Eve. And in, the, in my Texan temples class that I'll, I'll teach this fall, I show everyone the Garden of Eden was actually the first temple on earth. Going back to the quote, Adam and Eve, Noah and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, Lehi and Sariah, plus all other devoted disciples of Jesus Christ since the world was created have made the same covenants with God. They have received the same ordinances that we as members of the Lord's restored church today have made those covenants that we receive at baptism and in the temple. So here's number one. I have several to get through. This one I think is the most important, so I'm starting with this. Ancient and modern temples teach powerful truths regarding Jesus Christ and his atonement. If you've missed this in the temple, brothers and sisters, please go back five, 10, 50 times and let the Lord teach you. The law of Moses attests the Hebrew word kapar, the ruler's kapar, translated to atone or atonement about 80 times in association with the tabernacle and the temple. Exodus 10 times, Leviticus 20, 49 times, Numbers 18 times, Deuteronomy 3 times. This fact establishes that the temple was an atonement-focused institution. And compare this with President Nelson's statement. The basis for every temple ordinance and covenant, the heart of the plan of salvation, is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Every lesson, sorry, every activity, every lesson, all we do in the church, point to the Lord and his holy house. Our efforts to proclaim the gospel, perfect the saints, and redeem the dead all lead to the temple. I'm, I'm frankly astounded at these wonderful teachings. How about sacred vestments? Anciently, they had sacred vestments. On the left of the screen, you'll see the priest in white priestly garments. He wore four priestly vestments. These are found in Exodus 20, I want to say Exodus 28. Uh, oh, it's right there on the screen, Exodus 28. Uh, let me say, I think it's Exodus 28, 39. <laughs> um, four, and I don't know if you know this, but one of the four are sacred, sacred, uh, sacred underwear, sacred garments. Uh, I'm not saying they're like ours, but they were sacred. They were holy and they were from God. Um, on the right, the, the high priest had eight sacred vestments, and you can see the mannequin there. Um, 
the four of the priest plus four additional sacred vestments. Now, I want to share a story that I had permission to share with you and that I had permission to publish. There was a young couple in Huntington Beach. Uh, the state president there was President Rick Johnson. And just as an additional note, he now is the mission president of the late Utah mission. So if you're from that mission, maybe you went through the tabernacle, I hope you did, and maybe you met him. Remarkable leader. President Johnson told me this story about this young couple who had gone to the, the temple as newlyweds and then never again. They, they thought some things were maybe a little strange or things they didn't understand. They kept going to church, but they didn't go to the temple anymore. But they went to the Tabernacle Moses replica and they saw this very mannequin that's on your screen and they heard one of us explain the eight components of the vestments and how they're Jesus Christ focused and what they mean. And, and it struck them. The Spirit taught them. So they went to their state president and said, we want to go back to the temple. We'd like to recommend we're worthy. We've been worthy all along. We paid tithing and so on. But uh, the Spirit taught us something about our own temple. So see, the Old Testament and the temple can teach us about our temple in hundreds of ways. So they did go back to the temple. I thought, find that to be a remarkable story. It's now kind of a famous story, and I heard another state president in the Layton area said, I have a Huntington Beach, uh, California story similar to President Johnson's. Uh, and I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, if our youth read the Old Testament and read about sacred things and what prophets did and, and, and so on and, and how they work and prophesy and work among nations and peoples, that they would uh, more fully understand the gospel in our dispensation, which is a restoration. I think they would understand it. Now, just as a note, you see the breastplate. As a side note, there's a pocket right in here of the breastplate, and that's where they kept the Urim and Thummim. And I've heard some people uh, wonder about the Sir Stone that Joseph Smith used and so on. Um, if, if they do, they need to read Revelation 2.17 that talks about a uh, white stone that will be given to faithful people who go to heaven, a white stone, and on the white stone, says Revelation 2, 17, is a new name. And we, we learn from section 130 that that white stone is a Urban Thummim to those who go to heaven. Uh, here again, if they just read the Bible and study it, number three is a dedicatory prayer, ancient and modern dedicatory prayer. For Solomon's temple, 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon raised his hands to heaven. That's the ancient manner of praying in the temple. We have at least a dozen passages in the Bible that state that. How did, what was their posture in the temple when they prayed? It wasn't folded arms and bowed head, which is totally appropriate, proper, and reverent. But in the temple, they raised their hands to heaven. So this artist has Solomon raising his hands when he dedicates the temple. And then we have the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, section 109. Number four, the temple ancient modern is a house of prayer. Notice this, Isaiah 56, that's my 
third presentation uh, this, this morning. I, God, will make them joyful. Notice it doesn't, they become joyful just through their actions. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And Jesus said it's written, and he's quoting Isaiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer. This is important. And someone might say, well, I can pray in my car. I can pray in the mountain. I can pray in the garden. I can pray anywhere. Yes, you can. This has a special circumstance attached to it. And if you haven't picked up on that, go back to the temple 40 or 50 times and learn about it. There's Joseph Smith on the house of prayer. Yeah, the dedicatory prayer. Establish a house, even a house of prayer. The language is just amazing. That your incomings may be in the name of the Lord, that your outgoings may be in the name of the Lord, that all your salutations may be in the name of the Lord with uplifted hands unto the Most High. Now, uh, I, 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 I bear testimony that the temple's a house of prayer. And my wife, Camille, and I have used it many times for a very sacred needs. One time we were in the mountains of Idaho, the Sawtooth Mountain Range, near Stanley, Idaho, but about 17 miles to the north, and our 12-year-old son got lost in the primitive area, the middle of nowhere. And we are really concerned about him. Even to this day, he's a little directionally challenged. And so he, he walked away and walked away. He's gone for hours, and we were really concerned. And it was uh, late, late afternoon. So I went into the tent by myself and knelt down and prayed, but I prayed with the temple in mind and came out of the tent. And right when I came out, someone yelled, I see him coming through the woods. It, it, it was not a coincidence. Number five, temple's ancient modern is center place. If not the actual geographical center, certainly the spiritual center. Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the last days, all nations will flow to the temple. In the Hebrew, it's to river to or to stream to it. The miracle of the temple, if it's on the mountain, how can it flow like a river up the mountain? How can people flow like a river up the mountain? That's the miracle of the temple. Did you know that Joseph Smith's 1833 plat of the city of Zion positions the temple in the center? Independence with its temple. It's called the center place. Did you know that Salt Lake City serves as the center point of the road infrastructure of the city? This, uh, the tabernacle is the geographical center. Uh, Numbers uh, chapter 2. Now I'm going to show you two maps that are really fun. Jerusalem, the focal point of the world. If you look at the middle of the map, the very center is Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Not only because it's the holy city, but it's the temple city. Uh, we're talking about anciently. So it's a very interesting map. And, and use this map if you get lost and you're on your way home. Um, there's a colorful map. Uh, at the center of this is Jerusalem and the temple. See, the idea of the temple being the center point of the world. Notice uh, Europe here, Asia, Africa, 
bottom left is America, it says the New World, but Jerusalem's at the center. So this map is totally accurate. <laughs> There's Jerusalem, a map of Jerusalem, and Solomon's temples at the very middle. It says Templum Solomos, uh, and there are uh, four concentric circles. The idea of a dartboard, but the very center, the focal point, is the temple. I'm going to change the subject now and go to number six. I presented this to a group uh, somewhere in North Utah recently, and two, two returned missionaries came up and said, I didn't know Solomon's temple had a body of water on the backs of 12 oxen. This is astounding. So uh, all of our temple, our oxen, uh, baptismal fonts have uh, the 12 oxen. I, I just find it to be totally uh, uh, astounding and amazing. Um, now there are a couple differences between modern temples and ancient temples, maybe a handful, and I'll tell one right now. Ancient temples did not do work for the dead. That did not start until Jesus died and his spirit went to the spirit world and then the resurrection. It was after that that the temple work for the dead started. I, I thought I'd share this with you. These are the 12 oxen that were in the Salt Temple. And this is after they were prepared. And I just thought some photographer took a photo of them. I think it would have been fascinating to go on my morning walk every day and go past them. And, and it, it, uh, they're just amazing. Okay, the next one is number seven, moral qualities for temple entrance. There are two ancient temple hymn, entrance hymns, Psalm uh, 15 and Psalm 24. I'm going to teach these to my Gospel Doctrine class this coming Sunday. Uh, and both of them are similarly structured with two rhetorical questions, uh, an answer or response, and then a blessing to those who enter the temple. Who shall ascend into the mountain, the Hebrews mountain, reads mountain, who shall ascend into the mountain of the Lord and notice you ascend to sacred space? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Two rhetorical questions. The answer, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity? And remember this, if you advance, advance, and you're really uh, living the commandments and have a pure heart, Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for he shall see God. And we've had prophets who say, when you see God in our dispensation, it will be in a temple, if we have a temple. President Nelson said this, so on the left, it sounds kind of like a, a hymnic temple recommend. It's not the actual questions that they would ask, it's poetic. President Nelson said, no unclean thing may enter his hallowed house. Because the temple is the house of the Lord, standards for admission are set by him. One enters as his guest. To hold a temple recommend is a priceless privilege and a tangible sign of, of obedience to God and his prophets. Now I have two stories I'm going to share with you. The first is President Sister Faust and their son Marcus and his wife went to the Washington, went to the Washington DC temple. I don't know if you know this, but apostles have a special temple recommend. 
It's a lifetime te temple recommend. I don't know what it looks like. As when they were at the recommend desk, everyone is showing the recommend to enter the temple. When President Faust produced his, the temple, the man at the desk said, he didn't recognize President Faust, he didn't recognize the recommend, and he said, we don't take this kind here. <laughs> so President Faust, who's super, super meek and humble, as are all the apostles, he and his family quietly left. Rather than embarrass the man, if it hadn't been some of us, maybe me, I would have insisted, let me talk to the president. Don't you know who I am? Or something. But rather than embarrass this, this wonderful man at the desk, they left. The second story about a temple recommend was President John Taylor and the state president of Logan, in Logan. And for the Logan Temple ded ded dedication, they had about 2,000 people attend, and all of them had to have temple recommends. President Taylor noticed a sister who had just entered over this area, and he was standing next to President Card, and he said, that sister may not come in. So President Card went over, and maybe someone else intercepted her, and quietly told her not to embarrass her, you cannot come into the temple. Now, President Taylor had the spirit. He didn't know this sister, and out of 2,000 people flowing to the temple, he noticed her. Later, President Card went to the sister's home and found this out. She was not a member of the church. She had purchased a recommend from a neighbor for a dollar. And she was just curious to see what went on in the temple. I, I'm astounded at that, too. Number eight, temple and power. Did you know the word power is collocated with temple in several scriptural passages, both ancient and modern? Number nine, the law of sacrifices. Anciently, they actually sacrificed animals. In our day, we have the law of sacrifice in the temple. I'm not speaking uh, words that I should not and revealing things that I should not speak. So I quoted uh, the teachings of President Gordon B. Hinckley. Number 10, architectural safeguards. This includes boundaries, thresholds, horizontal zones, vertical features, walls, gates, doors, bells, etc., to protect the holiness of God's temples. And this also, uh, we mentioned veils, and veils serve a different purpose than doors. Sometimes think about that. What, what, what's the purpose of a veil in the ancient temple? Say, the tabernacle of Moses and a door. Uh, why not just have a door with a doorknob? They have two different architectural functions. But both of these uh, pertain to our temple and ancient temples. The next one's going to be a quote, and you'll see why. In the temple, God uses covenants, signs, and tokens. I would not dare use that term in an audience like this, but I'm quoting President Nelson. Then he says, the pattern is evident in Holy Writ. If you've missed that, brothers and sisters, go back and make a study of especially the Old Testament. You want to find if there are signs and tokens. Yes, of course. And he says it right there, it's evident. 
Number 12, holiness to the Lord. Ancient temples did not have holiness to the Lord on the temple, but on the high priest's gold crown, it says in Hebrew, Kodesh, Lagunai, I'm saying it the way the Jews say it, fully respectful out of, for the name Jehovah. Uh, we were respectful too, and we have a similar tradition in section 107, but this is found on the high priest, holiness to the Lord. President Nelson said this, well, do you, did you ever wonder what holiness to the Lord means? Which, which, which holiness? And he gives us three. Holiness to the Lord, one, designates the temple, two, its purposes, and three, those who enter the temple have to, should bear the attributes of holiness. I love that quote. May 2001, that means he gave it in April conference 2001. I love it. I just love the internationalness of the church too. Everything. Number 13, I know I'm going fast. I'm, I'm not trying to go too fast. Uh, trumpets and trumpet symbolism, ancient, modern. Do a study of trumpets in the Old Testament. You'll see that they announce important events. We have, uh, uh, many of our temples have um, a Moroni with a trumpet. And some of our prophets have discussed the purpose of that trumpet to call people to come to the temple, to to call the nations to come to the gospel. Um, I want to tell you especially about the Salt Lake Temple, Moroni. The uh, sculptor, sculpture is Cyrus Dallin, and he was a non-member when he did the sculpture. He wasn't a member of the faith, and President Wilfred Woodruff asked him if he would sculpt the angel Moroni. And Cyrus said no. Uh, he didn't feel comfortable. He didn't know much about angels. He's from Springville, and his mom was from Springville. And his mom was a faithful member of the church. And the mom heard that President Wilfred Woodruff asked her son Cyrus to uh, sculpt the angel. So the mom said, every, home, every evening when you come home, come give me a hug as your angel mother, and you will learn what an angel is. And he did so. He also studied Revelation 14, 6 and 7, and I, John, saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. And this impacted him, so he did, uh, uh, that's from Cyrus Dallin. 14, priesthood. Common to ancient modern. Who would have thought of this? Priesthood members ministered in ancient modern temples and managed the affairs. Quote, I will show unto my servant Joseph all things pertaining to this house, the temple, and the priesthood. Number 15, the idea of Zion and temple are collocated, meaning they're found in the same verses. By collocations, here's what I mean. If you were to Google the word Christmas, you would find the following collocations. Tree, Christmas tree, Santa Claus, gift, present, December, Jesus Christ, birthday, and so on. So that's what I mean to do a scripture search, and that means they're connected thematically. 16, the temple as house. It's the Lord's house. Ancient temples were called the house of the Lord. Modern temples are so named. 
17 is directional prayer. The Jews to this day pray toward Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. And I've been in many synagogues, and most synagogues, I don't want to say all, but they might, might be all, most synagogues are directionally oriented so that worshipers in the synagogue, when they're standing there facing the pulpit, are facing Jerusalem. Uh, one of the synagogues in, in uh, Salt Lake, I've been there a few times as a guest, and uh, that's the case. They've, they've, uh, the architects have fixed the synagogue so people are facing Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. And that directional prayer is found maybe a dozen times in the Old Testament. The idea of facing the temple when you pray. And President Wilfred Woodruff said something about that, the dedicatory prayer. Number 18, the, the idea of holy. Temples are holy. You, you knew this, but maybe you didn't connect it to ancient and modern temples. And I've given you some passages. 19. Temples, ancient, modern, present symbolic elements. This confuses so many people when they read the ancient temple texts and ancient tabernacle texts, and they say, what's all this? What does this mean? Why so much detail? What's the incense represent? What do the horns represent on the the altar of sacrifice. What's the menorah? What's the Ark of the Covenant? President Nelson, each temple is a house of learning. There, we are taught in the master's way. His way differs from modes of others. His way is ancient and rich with symbolism. We can learn much by pondering the reality for which each symbol stands. And then Elder Orson F. Whitney said this, God teaches with symbols. It is his favorite way of teaching. I wish someone had to show me that when I first went to the temple years ago. I, I, missed, I missed that one. By the way, I made a mistake when I went uh, to the temple as a freshman at uh, Rick's College, and I went to the Idaho Falls Temple. No, it wasn't the temple that was the mistake. It was, here's what he did wrong. I went to the temple, I rejoiced. The culture of our time uh, there at Rick's College among all of us getting ready for missions was, this is glorious and amazing. And uh, we didn't question any, anything we didn't understand, we just put it on hold. But here's my mistake, after the temple I went home to my dorm room and called mom and dad on the old telephones and I said, guess what? I went to the temple today. And they lived over near Boise in Melba in Long Paws. And then mom said, why didn't you invite us? <laughs> and, and I said, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to. So that was my mistake. I've regretted that ever since. Just invite your parents. If you haven't been to the temple, if there are any teenagers here, make sure you invite a guardian, a parent, grandparent, or someone who can go with you. 20 temples are built after a divine pattern. I don't know if you know this, but the Lord revealed the pattern of the tabernacle to Moses. He even revealed the components and the fixtures and the vessels and the menorah and the table showbread and the size and the width and the height of the fence around the courtyard and so on in detail. 
Solomon's temple was revealed to King David, and his son built it. Kirtland and Nauvoo temples were revealed to Joseph Smith, the prophet, in detail. Salt Lake Temple was revealed to uh, President Brigham Young. You might remember that three or four days after he arrived in, after the saints arrived in uh, the Salt Lake Valley, July 27th, 28th, it was the, uh, so it wasn't the 24th, it was three or four days later, President Brigham Young was walking through some sagebrush and at hand was Elder Wilford Woodruff. President Brigham Young had a powerful rod or stick. And he took it and he dug it into, he went like this and pressed it into the dirt, the soil, and the sagebrush. And that's when he made the famous statement, here we will build our temple. President Elder Wilford Woodruff was so inspired by this act that Elder Wilford Woodruff went and found a stake, came back to the impression of the ground and put a stake there. And before nightfall, the elders of Israel had outlined the Salt Lake Temple area, corded it off or something. Uh, President Brigham Young later told the saints that he saw a vision of what the temple would look like. And then he said this remarkable statement. He said, every time I walked past that, I had the vision again. So the Salt Lake Temple was revealed to President Brigham Young. Now, if you want to know where that area was, I can tell you within 10 feet, and I've done the research, the south, southeastern point of the Salt Lake Temple. Uh, within 10 feet of that, uh, the, the corner there is where President Brigham Young put the stick in. I've taken students there and I wanted to take them there this fall. Um, it's not going to work because of the reconstruction. 21, temple is a place to worship God. Both ancient modern temples are quintessential places for humankind to worship God. Gatekeepers. There were ancient gatekeepers. See First Chronicles and so on. The modern gatekeepers says President Lorenzo Snow are bishops and stake presidents. They're the sentinels now. Number 23, the, the idea of an altar. Someone could say, oh, Joseph Smith just invented that one. That's, that was a lucky guess. No, this is uh, uh, the holy altar is important. Number 24 is Revelation. The place is the temple's a place of divine revelation. Number 25, the idea of gradations of holiness. This one, I've researched this a lot. Um, even if you studied this for years, and I have, you couldn't have come up with it for our temples or ancient one outside of revelation. Ancient modern temples possess gradations of holiness. This is the idea of pro from profane space, profane and corruptible space, to holy, more holy, and most holy. You'll see that in our temples and the ancient ones. This one, I, I can't take you through the whole thing. It's the idea of gestures of approach. This is what the scholars call it. They call them gestures because most of the things here 
Okay, uh, you're using hands and gestures. Washing with water, anointing with olive oil, investiture of sacred vestments, laying on of hands of sacrificial animals, offering sacrifices, filling the priest's hands. The Moses put something in the priest's hands. For that, I, I give you a source, Bible dictionary. Um, it, uh, let me pause on that one. In, in the scriptures, the King James translators translated, uh, let's see, uh, Moses consecrated Aaron and his sons. Remember, Aaron and the sons were the priests and high priests. Moses consecrated them, but that, that's found about 18 times. <clears throat> but in the scriptures, the literal reading is Moses filled their hand. He put something in their hand. So here again, a sacred gesture. Prayer with uplifted hand and entering the veil. And there are two or three others that I'm not giving to you. So the scholars call them gestures of approach because they're the gestures that line up on line the priest would do in order to get to the Holy of Holies. And uh, you can't just walk into it and say, I'm going to the Holy of Holies. Uh, you have to do certain sacred ordinances. Number 27, the temple is a return to the Garden of Eden. And here's a quote, uh, Elder Talmadge in the book, House of the Lord. The Garden of Eden was the first sanctuary of, uh, of Earth. <clears throat> One of my first papers that I wrote on the temple and presented and later published was on uh, symbolic elements of the temple in the Garden of Eden. And as, as you know, the Garden of Eden narrative, a true narrative with symbolic elements, is <clears throat> uh, recalled in our temple in great detail. So in our temple, we, we recall the first temple experience with Adam and Eve, real people, absolutely, but there's a lot of symbolism in the story. And so there are other elements. There are about 10 elements in the Garden of Eden story, Genesis chapter two, that are found in later temple systems. Now this diagram, which I'll explain in a minute, was prepared by Michael Lyon from Provo. Michael Lyon passed away about a month ago and I went to his funeral. He was about 70 years old, way too young to pass away. At the, and he was an artist. He did a lot of the diagrams for uh, Brother Hugh Nibley in his book, Temple and Cosmos, and other books. But this one he did for a book that I edited in 1992. And the... Uh, <clears throat> I have a funny story about Michael Lyon. He also made a model, a full-size replica of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was sitting in his family room for months, and he made it for the TV show called Touched by an Angel. But he hadn't delivered it yet to the TV people. And so one time, at one time, Michael's nephew came in and saw the Ark of the Covenant, and Michael was there, and his brother, and a couple of others. The nephew was about this big, 
saw what it was, and then he turned to his uncle and said, Uncle Michael, you're in big trouble. There are a lot of people looking for this. <laughs> and uh, the boy had just recently seen uh, Indiana Jones. And <clears throat> that was a, a cute story. So Michael did this, and now you can find this all over. It's on, online and, and in different books. A lot of people use this. And here's the idea of this one. It is the Garden of Eden has the creation. The creation story, Genesis 1, also found in Abraham and Moses, is a temple text. It's not meant to be a scientific text. As one scholar said, if it's a scientific text found in the scriptures, it would be three or four hundred thousand pages as an introduction as to how God created the world. So please remember that the creation story is a temple text. It's a sacred text used in temple, temple uh, <clears throat> worship. And we know from a, a study by Stephen D. Ricks, who's my colleague at BYU, who published a paper back in 93, that the Jews in the temple of Herod, Herod also recited the creation story in the temple. So just keep that in mind if you hear some of the arguments about creation versus evolution and so on. And I, I just stay away from those and let both sides argue. But the creation story is a temple text. And then the idea of the fall, and you have the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then Adam and Eve kicked out past the cherubs. Well, the temple is a return to the Garden of Eden and through the atonement. And so on the right-hand side of the screen, Michael Lyon did this so beautifully. The cherubs, so you have the law of sacrifice and the labor, uh, washings and anointings, and you have others and going back into God's presence through the atonement and through atonement rituals that are found in Leviticus 1 through 17. Maybe I took too much time on that, I hope not. Now I'm going to tell a story. Some of you want wonder, the work I do in the temple, is it impacting? Yes, it's impacting you and it's blessing your life and the life of your children and grandchildren if you have some. It's blessing many people and it's making you filled with light. But let's look at it from another point of view. Elder Melvin J. Ballard, one Saturday went to the Logan, Utah Temple, baptismal font, shown below, and he was observing the work. And as he contemplated, he wondered if the dead would accept the work being done for them. Now, I know this feeling, I wasn't trying to copy Elder Ballard, and I didn't know that story at the time, but when I heard the Salt Lake Temple was going to be closed for a few years, um, that fall, September through December, I drove from Provo to Salt Lake many times and spent hours in that temple. I wanted to remember it, just fill it, fill the presence of, and power of God. And I'd do a session or uh, initiatory or something, and then I'd go to the celestial room, and I might, uh, some days I spent hours, six, eight hours. One time I went in there and it was filled with people, uh, standing room only. And I, at first I thought, I just entered heaven. I really felt that. This is heaven. They're dressed in white. They just went through ordinances, gestures of approach, prayer, and so on. 
And, it, it, and the, after that initial thought, I realized, oh, okay, I, I am in the uh, celestial room of the Salik Temple, but it's one and the same. I was, it, so I kind of understand what Elder Ballard's doing there. He's observing the work. This is what happened. All at once, a vision opened to me, and I beheld a great congregation of people gathered in the east end of the font room. One by one, as each name was baptized for, one of these people climbed a stairway over the font to the west end of the room. Not one soul was missing, but there was a person for every one of the thousand names done that day. Brother Ballard said that he had never seen such happy people in all his life, and the whole congregation rejoiced at what was being done for them. This one is found on the church website, and I, I felt it was important enough that I gave you that. Now back to square one. How did Joseph make the parallels? Did he do research? Did he go to the Harvard Library and do research? Did he fly over to Oxford or Cambridge universities in England? Uh, with, what's this with the ancient temple? Let's see if we can match it up. You know that's not the case. This is what Elder Harley P. Pratt said. Who instructed the prophet Joseph Smith in the mysteries of the kingdom and in all things pertaining to priesthood, law, philosophy, sacred architecture, ordinances, ceilings, anointings, baptisms for the dead, and in the mysteries of the first, second, and third heavens, many of which are unlawful to utter. Question. Answer. Angels and spirits from the eternal worlds. Did you know that Joseph Smith had over 50, 50 different angels appear to him, some of whom taught him? One of the angels appeared to him at least 20 times. Did you know he had not only the first vision, he had nine visions of Jesus Christ. I testify to you that Joseph Smith was a prophet, seer, and revelator. He held the keys to temple building. Those have been transmitted from prophet to prophet to President Nelson, who also holds the keys to temple building. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.